1: John Delaney was the first Democrat to say he wants to run for US president in 2020. And he did so just six months after the current president, Donald Trump, took office. Here's another thing to know about Delaney. Unlike some of his rivals, he thinks that Democrats and Republicans can meet in the middle. And that bipartisanship is the secret weapon that could help him come out on top in next year's elections. For all that, though, he's got some pretty strong views on China, on tech firms like Facebook, and how the rest of the world needs to stop free-riding on America's high drug prices. Delaney came by the exchange to chat with me about his vision for America, and here's the result. John Delaney, welcome. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Um, so your campaign, uh, your presidential campaign, when I look at the stuff that you've been up to in the almost two years since you said that you were interested in running to be President of the United States, what strikes me is that running for president is really hard work. Of all of the candidates out there, I would say that you are putting the most shoe leather into this whole uh, plan of yours. Yes. What is that like? T- talk us through a bit what life looks like on the campaign trail for you right now. Well, it's a lot of travel, uh, particularly to Iowa, New Hampshire.
2: I mean, I've done 28 trips to Iowa. I'm gonna do my 29th this weekend and 19 trips to New Hampshire. And so I'm traveling a lot. I mean, that's probably the biggest part, which is, you know, I used to travel a lot in my prior life in business. And then when I was elected to the Congress and served six years representing Maryland, I actually didn't travel all that much because my district was right next to the Capitol. And uh, so I'm kind of back on the road like I was when I was starting my first business to some extent. And, um, you know, it's, it's, that, that part's actually been great. I miss being away from home. I still have one of my uh, four children still at home. Uh, so I'm, I miss that, obviously. But um, it's been an amazing experience to go out and meet so many amazing and optimistic people all over the country.
1: And um, You've done every county, right? Every, we've done all 99 counties in Iowa. Which and we've done all not, the New Hampshire counties, too. Which today. is probably not true of any other of the no. 23, no. I think, latest count candidates. Yeah, it's
2: not clear team. if uh, if any of them will ever will do it. I mean, that used to be a tradition. You know, Obama did it. I think John Edwards did it. Uh, Some folks on the Republican side did it, but, uh, you know, and I think it's important to do it now because, you know, our party, the Democratic Party, is increasingly being identified with a handful of places, mostly on the coasts, and I just believe we should be campaigning everywhere. I think the things that unite us are more than the things
1: that divide us, and, you know, you can't fake showing up. And do you feel that Democrats are very different in some of those places that you're talking about, Iowa and New Hampshire, than they are in, for example, Maryland, where you serve three terms, or or New York. And we're going to get back to New York in yeah. a bit because, of, of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is someone who you've had a, a spirited debate with on some yes. topics. But her brand of dem- democrat is very different from yours and I'm guessing is very different, again, from what you pick up on the ground in yes. places like Iowa. I
2: mean, part of my theory is we need to be a Big Ten party. And that's, in many ways, the other way my campaign is evolving because now that there's a lot of candidates in the race... You know, maybe I was hoping to clear the field. That, quite, that, that didn't quite work. But you have to really make contrasts with people. And I think one of the clear contrasts that I'm making is that I want the Democratic Party or this next wave of the progressive movement, if you will, to be organized around this notion of a big tent, big coalitions. And so whether you're progressive or moderate or independent or a Republican who just looks at this current president and says, he does not represent my values, I want the Democratic Party to be the party where those people can all find a home. So I'm against these purity tests, if you will. I don't think that serves the, the cause of progress. Because if you look at how progress has been made in this country historically, it's always been when you build coalitions, where 60 to 70 percent of the American people are behind what you're trying to do. And then you have a chance of getting it done. Right. And that's not even certain. So I, I believe strongly the best way to to win in 2020 is to have that approach. And I think it's the best way to govern. So I think that is a very sharp contrast I have with uh, many people in my party who absolutely are doubling down on these
1: ideological purity tests. I want to talk to you a bit about this um, concept of ideological purity because C- California a few days ago you were at the um, Democratic convention and you were booed for saying that while Medicare, which is of course the the kind of healthcare, the U.S. healthcare program for the elderly and other other people in need of assistance, sounds like a good idea. To, if you roll it out to everyone, it's actually bad policy. Mm-hmm. That got you some boos. You weren't the only person who got booed at that convention. Yes. I know John Hickenlooper also got booed for saying, you know, for criticizing socialism, yes. which is another topic we'll get to soon. Yes. Um, what did you What did you mean? Because my understanding is that when you say Medicare for all is not good policy, you're not. Actually, saying something that is very different from the people who say that Medicare for All is a good policy. So, what is your actual view of what healthcare in the US should look like? So, I believe every citizen in the
2: United States of America should have healthcare as a right and it should be free. So, they should have a basic plan from the government that covers their healthcare needs as a basic right of citizenship. I think it's a human right. I also think it's smart economic policy because I think we're in a world where people are going to be changing jobs all the time. And the last thing you want them to do is not do that because of their health care. I know the only reason I started my first business is because my wife had health care, because we were starting a young family. I would have never left my job to start a company because I'm responsible if we didn't have health care in our family. And I think those stories are everywhere. So I want every single person to have health care as a right. And in fact, what I'm proposing is the largest expansion of government health care since the creation of Medicare. But I don't go as far as to say that we should make private insurance illegal which is what Medicare for All does. And the reason I don't say that is is a couple things. First, I believe in the politics of addition, not of subtraction. Right? We have a problem. We have a tragedy of uninsured Americans in this country. We should solve that problem by giving them health care. I don't think the way we give them health care is by saying to 150 million Americans who have a health care plan, and about 100 million of them like it, according to polling, that we are going to take that away from you. Because I don't think we'll ever win ele- an election if that's what we're actually proposing. And I just don't think it's the right thing to do. My dad... Who was a union construction worker he loved the health care that his union gave him and you know thinking about i always think about what would my dad think and me running and saying i'm taking away your health care he's like well that's the most important thing to me like i, I don't know what this new thing you're talking about is so, I don't know why we have to be so dogmatic about that because if the new government program is so great, then over time people will not want their private insurance and they'll go to the government plan. But why do we have to mandate that? So my view is that everyone would get a basic government plan, very similar to the minimum benefits that the Affordable Care Act required, right? The Affordable Care Act stipulated a bunch of benefits. And then we'd say to the American people, which is, that's your basic government plan. You don't have to pay for that. Now for some reason, you don't want that and you want to buy your own private insurance then you can opt out and get a small tax credit and use that to buy your own private plan, which probably wouldn't happen that much. What would actually happen is what Medicare beneficiaries do now, which is they buy supplemental plans. The overwhelming majority of Medicare beneficiaries buy supplemental plans to give them more options. And that's what I think would happen. So in many ways, my model would be like Germany's model, where everyone gets a basic plan as a right, and then you have kind of this private market that floats on top of it. Right. where people can choose additional options.
1: What about drug pricing? How does that figure in? Cause-
2: totally, yeah. I mean, you would have, obviously, pharmaceuticals would be covered, just like they are with Medicare. But we have to do some very different things with drug pricing. I'm in favor of allowing the government to negotiate drug prices with Medicare. I mean, uh, with pharmaceutical companies, which they're not allowed to now. But I'm also in favor of doing something else, because I actually think the real issue is that the world is free-riding on us. If you go to other develop, you go to Germany, which is a wealthy country, Their citizens are paying about a third to a quarter what we are for pharmaceuticals. I'm all for selling drugs at a low price to poor countries, but I'm not in favor of allowing other wealthy countries to basically pay in many ways less than cost for pharmaceuticals and then putting the pharmaceutical companies in a position where they shift all their cost to us. So in many ways, the US citizens are underwriting the whole industry. So what I want to do as president is make this a trade issue. And actually, get with the other wealthy countries, the G twenty, however you wanted to find them, and say, "Listen, we have to do this together." That may mean over time that some of their prices may go up a little bit, because but our, but ours have to go down.
1: But do you really think that the drug companies would raise their prices in Germany and therefore lower them in the U.S. or would they not just raise? I mean, they'd like to raise their prices everywhere. But if we negotiated,
2: yeah, but if if we negotiated it together, I think we would be in a better position to actually get in a position where the drug companies deserve to earn a fair return on the capital they invest. Because if we don't do that, they won't invest and there'll be no innovation. But if you look at it right now, they're earning virtually no return anywhere else and all of it here. And it's a global industry. They're, they're global companies, right? They, they're, they're the ultimate multinationals. These drugs are sold everywhere. They're innovated. The, the science comes from everywhere. So I just think that we have to get to that
1: point. And so the answer is yes, I think that's where it'll go. It's a tough sell for countries like Germany or, I think, of Britain, if you're saying to them, you need to pay more for your drugs. And they're already saying, but our health service is creaking. We can't pay the... But, but if the reviewing. United
2: States, <clears throat> I mean, I mean, if the United States actually plays hardball on this, which we have to, that's ultimately where it has to go. Like I'm not I, as president I'm not saying you got to raise prices on folks in Germany but what I am saying is you got to lower prices on US citizens. And so the question is
1: how are they going to respond to that? The drug companies. Yes. So playing hardball leads us neatly into the wider question of trade. Yes. We have a president who's playing very hardball at the moment mm-hmm. where in the midst of what I think now is probably definitely a trade war. Yes. Um, how – and yet on some of the issues that Trump holds dear, it seems to me that Democrats and Republicans are kind of in agreement. Uh, for example, the idea that China has had a bit too easy a time for too long, mm-hmm. um, the idea that certain trade – certain aspects of free and global trade have not necessarily done what we hoped they would. How do you feel about that? And, do you, and, and on what, on what, in what areas do you think Trump has got it right I think
2: Trump got it entirely right that China is a bigger problem than I think prior elected officials on both sides of the aisle were willing to acknowledge. You know, there was a presumption about how China would behave when we welcome into the global economy, and they didn't behave that way, full stop. You know, I, I, my view is they act like pirates. They steal everything. They steal intellectual property. They steal islands in the South China Sea. You know, they engage in behavior that we absolutely have to stop. I mean, China's become our rival because of three things. They made smart investments. Good for them. We should encourage that. They worked really hard. Good for them. We should encourage that. But they didn't play by the rules, let's face it. And that's where we have to stop. Now, I think the president's diagnosis of the problem is is solely around the trade deficit, which I don't actually think is the real problem. I mean, there are issues with the trade deficit. Don't get me wrong. But it's not this, the central problem. The central problem is intellectual property theft. And particularly in the next 20 years where, you know, the technological innovation is going to continue at a rapid rate and China has some built-in advantages around data because they have no privacy for their citizens and their 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 population is in some ways a giant lab for them. We can't let them steal all the intellectual property that we innovate in this liberal democracy that we have, which is the best place to innovate, and then have them use it in a way where they have a built-in advantage over data. We can't let that happen. And so this is where the president, I think, is entirely wrong, which is the only way to deal with China is with our allies and by getting U.S. companies on the same page and bringing a much more forceful unified front to this negotiation as opposed to what he's doing, which is go it alone. And I think what the Chinese are thinking about is, well, the president, what would be good for the president if we were, is, is if we were to buy a lot of soybeans or Boeing airplanes in the next year. That would actually be really good for the president. And we can do that. So maybe if we do that, we actually don't have to make the long-term concessions that we really don't want to make. Sounds they like They play the long
1: game, and he, I worry he's going to play the short game. It sounds like economically that's extremely rational, but when you talk about China being pirates, or you say that they stole islands yeah. in the South China Sea, that's the kind of stuff that that causes relationships with countries like China to break down mm-hmm. is... Yeah. that kind of name
2: but, like. but 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 let but it's all but I also say it with the view that I want to have a constructive relationship with China. I mean look at I think on technology I think they do have some built-in advantages and we should be collaborating. But I just think even even with your best friends, right? You sometimes have to call them out. And I'm not saying China's our best friends, but but I think that, that I'd be willing to stand in front of the leaders in China and point out the things they've done that they're, we're just not going to tolerate under a Delaney administration and that it was wrong. And I think what they're doing in the South China Sea is wrong. They're trying to build a constellation of islands so that they can claim that sovereign Chinese water and it's the biggest commercial shipping lane in the world. That's wrong. What they've done with intellectual property is wrong. And, but, you know, we've let our companies kind of uh, do things they shouldn't do. I mean... If you were running a U.S. company and you were to bribe a foreign official to get into a market, that would be a a, a crime under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. But we do let these companies take intellectual property and put it into joint ventures with companies knowing it'll be stolen to get into a market. And a lot of that intellectual property was actually developed by the U.S. taxpayers that we allowed the the private companies to commercialize, which is the best model out there but we we do have some say on this stuff. And so it's not just that I mean, we got to get our own companies on board and we got to get our allies on board and we got to go to China and basically get them to play by the rules.
1: What about Wall Street? How do you think Wall Street is doing and how would you deal with the big banks as a president? So, yeah,
2: I mean I did run, in many ways, my businesses were anti-Wall Street, right? The specific business plan of my companies was that there's a lot of fast-growing, mid-sized companies in this country that were not getting financing by big banks because they weren't going public or doing bond transactions, et cetera. So there was no investment banking business to sell these companies, so there was no reason to lend to them. And I built a business basically taking advantage of that opportunity that existed, and I was good at it. Um, so listen, I, I think what's, there's a broader issue going on right now, which is corruption generally. There's a broader issue going on, which is, you know, our failure to address basic needs of the American people, whether it be healthcare, care, public education, affordable housing, any of these things. And I think, you know, in addition, big banks are not as much of the focus. I think technology companies in many ways are, because I think, objectively speaking, Relative to the banks, we haven't regulated them at all.
1: Do you, believe, do you agree that, the tech, that some of the big tech companies should be broken up?
2: <clears throat> I, I think they should. Y- yes, to some extent. And let me say what I mean by that. I actually think the wrong question is picking a company and saying it should be broken up. I think what should happen is we should update our laws. Right? So, we have two antitrust laws in this country. We have the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act. <clears throat> and they were never designed for vertical integrations. They were designed for these horizontal integrations. And the problem we have in tech and in agriculture and a few other industries is massive vertical integrations. And the nice thing about the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act is they can be applied retroactively. No one really knows that. So if you change those laws, you can actually look at a merger from 10 years before and say, let's reevaluate it now based on the laws. So what I want to do as president is update those laws. I don't think there's any question that the way I envision those laws being updated would lead to some of these companies being broken up.
1: And you don't want to. You're not necessarily getting into specific companies, but the obvious one there is Facebook, which yes. is, which vertically because, integrated by buying WhatsApp and Instagram. And I
2: think if we had the right antitrust laws, they wouldn't have been able to do that. And and if you amended them, then they, they would be broken up. Yeah, basically. But I think the the it's not the I don't think it's right because I think it gets to this law it's it's kind of lawless to some extent to just walk down the street and point at a company because that's kind of what the president would do he'd say i don't like cnn so i'm going to mess with the merger which people think he did by the way that's lawless do you think he did I, i you know listen it wouldn't surprise me I mean, I have any evidence that he did, right, but it wouldn't surprise me. I think it's really concerning. So I just think it's incredibly important as someone who really cares about the rule of law to say, "Listen, we have failed to update our antitrust laws. We have to do that, right it's ridiculous that we haven 't done that. But then there's a whole other thing with tech, which I think is as concerning, which is privacy. That has nothing do with breaking them up, but it has to do with actually standing up for consumers. I 'm in favor of the California privacy legislation. I think it should be the national legislation. I'm in favor of doing things to protect democracy as it relates to voting. I mean, if I take one of my political ads, and I put it on television, I have to say paid for by John Delaney. If I put that same ad on social media, I don't have to disclose that. There's a reason the Russians put all their ads on social media. It's not because they thought television was bad. It's they were probably laughing that we had this loophole. I mean, just think about that. Obviously, a bunch of pretty shrewd elected officials several decades ago said, you know, it probably makes sense for the American people to understand who's doing political advertising because it changes how you think about the ad. So it's basic stuff. We got to update those laws. We got to pass privacy legislation and then we have to update the antitrust laws. That's my view of tech.
1: Do you think the president has been right in his targeting of Huawei? Yes. Uh, To a certain extent. Huawei, by the way, being the Chinese yeah. telecom equipment company that is currently <coughs> persona non grata in the U.S.
2: Yeah. But I also think we got to have a competitive alternative. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I think, uh, I think there is a big concern with Huawei. There's no question about it. So that's an area where I'm less critical of, to be honest with you. But, again, I think even that can be repaired, right? It's all about getting people to play by the rules. And one of the best ways to get people to play by the rules is to have a good competitor. Are you the underdog in this race? I think everyone's the underdog, almost by definition. I mean, last time the favorites were
1: Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton, and neither right. of them are in the White House. That is true. Some some people are getting certainly more airtime than absolutely, you, though, right? And I'm thinking, and that's a challenge. That's Warren, yeah, Bernie Sanders is at Walmart's annual meeting campaigning for a higher minimum wage. There are some people who are very much out there yeah. hitting some of these very. Um, very polemic issues, yes. and you're focusing on a middle ground, which yes. is incredibly important, but is less conducive to mm-hmm. being on the front page.
2: Yeah, it's the kind of, uh, my candidacy is the one that, that has the highest probability of winning in the general election, right, because I'm, I'm talking about, you know, I'm talking about stuff like increasing the earned income tax credit, which really helps workers. I'm talking about my climate strategy actually being launched in the heartland of America by launching this whole new industry called direct air capture you know, to basically build the industry of the future, to vacuum 20% of the carbon out of the atmosphere, which is doable, and locating it right where we need jobs. So I'm talking about issues that I think will allow us to win states that we've lost, but I have to get through the primary. I think that what the Democratic Party is looking for is new ideas and new people, and I think they're looking to win. So I think by the fall, their primary focus will be who can beat Trump,
1: you, um, you, you, you've kind of styled yourself as the Jimmy Carter of this race. Yes. Is Jimmy Carter your favorite president?
2: I admire Jimmy Carter greatly. I, I, I wouldn't say he's my favorite president. I mean, everyone's, you know, it's really funny. Walter Isaacson once was speaking about George Washington, and he goes, well, the thing about George Washington, he's granite-like in his greatness, so he's almost not counted as a president because he's almost in a different category, which I kind of agree with. I mean, everyone's favorite president has to be Lincoln. He saved the country. And, you know, Lincoln, uh, you know, we're a very divided nation right now. Thinking about Lincoln also reminds us that we have been more divided in the past.
1: So let's say you win the election uh, 50 years from now when they're writing the history books, which 50 years from now will not be books. They'll yeah. be transmitting the information directly into our brains. Wh- how, what do you want people to, to say? That, you know, John Delaney, he was the president who got government working again.
2: Right? Cuz you know, I'd be happy to, to leave the the White House after 8 years having accomplished a huge number of things and actually getting no credit for it. Cuz all I want to do is do things. I want to put us on a trajectory to get to net zero by 2050 and build a whole new industry in the process. I want to fix our healthcare system. I want to help workers by expanding the earned income tax credit. I want every American to have pre-K. I want to expand early childhood for for young people because I think it's a crime that poor kids start kindergarten having heard a third of the words everyone else they never catch up I want to fix these fundamental issues in our country and recommit ourselves to our model because I think our salvation is actually staring us in the face just recommit to what we've done historically come together restore a sense of common purpose to the country and start getting things these things done that matter to people
1: John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Great luck out. It was a good discussion. Thanks for listening to the Exchange. This episode was produced by Freddie Joyner. You can find more episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your usual audio kicks. You can also check us out at breakingviews.com.
0: This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com symbols.